from deep inside your audio device of choice. From, I almost bit my lip off there, trying to say from Southern California, ladies and gentlemen, it's um, it's a period of time where you could almost think that all the sleazeballs who've worked their toxic magic for years under the protection of their own power or that of those they served have uh, been brought to uh, account. Au contraire, my frere, there are plenty more still to be uncovered. Stay tuned. But meantime... Well, you know, it's been uh, brooded about for years that hydraulic fracturing, that method of getting oil out the ground and into your life, uh, was um, causing some peril, some uh, possible danger to the groundwater that uh, a lot of us... uh, have wells going into well not a lot of us who has a well these days anyway it's not just environmentalists anymore who suspect that oil companies in oklahoma ones that produce from older old style vertical wells have raised that prospect of contamination of groundwater as they complain about the practices of their larger oil company brethren it's a it's a family feud in the oil in the oil family this is from energy wire the uh Old line, smaller oil companies say hundreds of their wells have been flooded by high-pressure fracturing from the uh, horizontal wells that blast fluid a mile or more underground. Some of those frack hits, man, that's a good format for radio, frack hits. Uh, Some of those frack hits have reached groundwater, they suspect. I'm convinced we're impacting fresh water here, says a small producer from Holdenville. If they truly impact the groundwater, he says, we can kiss hyd- hydraulic fracturing goodbye, unquote. Don't tell uh, Kevin Spacey. Oil and gas regulators at the Oklahoma Corporation Commission say they've found no proof of such groundwater contamination. Some oil and gas operators think those regulators aren't looking too hard. After all, corporation is their middle name. And at least one OCC official has said it's beyond the authority of the agency to block drilling based on a risk to groundwater. What would you have to pose a risk to before it would be within your authority? Who can possibly answer that question? Larger producers acknowledge that such contamination could happen, but they reiterate there's no proof that it has. Is there any proof that it hasn't? They didn't reiterate that. Quote, we have never seen a freshwater impact, says the operations engineering advisor for the state's largest oil producer. I'm not saying it can never occur. If we felt it was us, I think we'd clean it up. Clean up that groundwater. How would you do that, sir? Groundwater contamination is an inflammatory charge. Large oil companies and national trade groups have been fending off those allegations since the drilling boom began. But the small producers leveling these accusations are involved with the a, a bitter political brawl with Oklahoma's larger drillers. The question of groundwater contamination is a small part of that debate. Overshadowed by a fight over taxes. Money, really? And where horizontal drills, what wells can be drilled. 
In many places in Pennsylvania, small farmers complained their water wells went bad after fracking showed up. But these small producers say they're not against fracking, much less drilling itself. They say simply want, they simply want it done right. And they say it's the larger frackers, the mother fracker, you know you wouldn't say that, who are putting the industry's reputation at risk. If it happens where farmers depend on groundwater, the entire industry will get blamed, says another small producer and the former mayor of Tulsa, who adds, that's scary. Former mayor of Tulsa says that's scary. You see what I'm saying? The prospect of frack hits causing water contamination was raised in an EPA study last year that found no systemic threat to groundwater from fracking. Those who dismiss the concerns about such a contamination say fracking occurs far beneath aquifers, that's where groundwater lives, and has a nice living, uh, a mile or two beneath and oil and gas wells are sealed off with cement casing to protect even remotely drinkable groundwater. That was true at the beginning of the boom, when producers focused on deep shale formations, but now some large producers are turning the, the technology on shallower formations, as shallow as 2,800 feet in Oklahoma. Many old wells were built without protection for groundwater. Horizontal wells can be fracked within 600 feet of the older vertical wells, sometimes closer, under Oklahoma's system, and fractures can reach much further than that, even. One engineer testified in September, frack fluid has been found a mile away from where it started. He said he didn't believe it could get into groundwater. But he was drinking from a bottle. You see, no, he wasn't. I'm just, I'm, I'm just having fun with the fracking thing. Because, hello, welcome to the show.
from Santa Monica, California, the home of the homeless. I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this, this, this specific edition of the show, not to any of the others. And now... Well, despite what uh, digitaltrends.com says is the seeming ubiquity of smart home assistants, you think they're, they seem ubiquitous? There's one over there. Smart home appliances and even smart home security things. The widespread availability of these devices doesn't always translate into widespread smart homes. Seems obvious, but it is. According to a report from Insurance Quotes, only 16.3% of homes in the U.S. are projected to fall under the smart category by the end of this year. Only 16.3% of American homes will feature more than one Internet-connected device capable of controlling household functions through a hub or an app or a, a hack. But... Assuming that the thought of a talking dishwasher or a set of smart lights would begin to seem more familiar, this number may increase. There seem to be some signs of increased acceptance of smart home devices. In 2016, nearly half of renovating homeowners decided to install such devices, the most popular of which were smart security systems. There's an oxymoron for you. 12% of homeowners have turned to smart home devices to control their lights, locks, and video cameras, and smart climate control systems. Insurance quotes data suggests Generation X people are twice as likely as millennials to purchase smart home tech, particularly smart security tech. Again, with the oxymoron and the thing. So they're slicing uh, slicing and dicing us into uh, generations to figure out who wants them and who doesn't. Facebook didn't invent dividing America. What's holding folks back? Ironically, 17% of Americans seem to be most concerned about their smart home devices being unsecured. Only 17% are concerned about that. 7% cite lack of need (laughs) as the reason to desist from smartening up their homes. I'll say lack of need, but only at 7%. 6% say these connected devices are just too darn complicated. I'd say those are the boomers. The single most prohibitive factor appears to be cost. Don't you know? 42% say that having a smart home is just too expensive. We don't need it, but we'd like it to be cheaper. And then not needing it wouldn't bother us so much. On the other hand, Britain's People in the UK don't feel quite as warmly toward the whole smart house concept. A new study, and these are public opinion polls, and I know what they're worth, ladies and gentlemen, but I got time to fill. A new study shows that 76% of Britons fear the smart home. Fear the smart home. They don't care about the possible cost savings. Cost savings? Americans think they cost too much. What the hell? Can we? Can Two countries separated by... A common concern about cost. The primary reason for being fearful has to do with the data collection. They fear companies could collect personal information from within homes and use it for their own gain. What would lead them to believe that? What possibly in the modern experience could... They fear that 51% of the 2,000 people surveyed 
are not in favor of smart dwellings due to hackers. 42% believes government could record homeowners without their knowledge. 43% are concerned about smart home products becoming unusable due to a virus. They don't worry about bacteria, just viruses. So um, we'll be smart, and Britain won't be as smart as we are. News of smart homes, smart houses, smart. It's a smart world, wherever you look. Ladies and gentlemen, we are proud to present Let Us Try, a ballad of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Let us try to stem the tide To beautify our countryside We offer you our hand Let us try You know how things are going in Puerto Rico these days? Not well. And one of the reasons appears to be the United States Army Corps of Engineers. AP says officials in the United States and Puerto Rico are giving different views, differing views as to when power will be fully restored to the territory. Ricardo Ramos, director of the state-owned power company, says they've restored 35% of the electrical system's regular output, going to reach 50% by mid-month, 95% by mid-December. But Ray Alexander, director of contingency operations at the U.S. Army Corps, says the Corps' goal is to have 50% by the end of November, 75% by the end of January. We're focused on executing the mission we've been assigned, Alexander said at a hearing in Washington. Says the Corps has been working with the U.S. Department of Energy to help develop a more resilient electrical grid for Puerto Rico. President Trump has already cleared the way for additional federal federal funding for Puerto Rico to increase the share of rebuilding and recovery costs borne by the federal government. Normally, states cover 25% of this costs, but Puerto Rico can't afford to. A large swath of the island, says the AP, still has no electricity. Complaints are widespread among business owners who say losses are mounting and from parents who say their children need to start school. Nearly 20% of the island remains without water. Tens of thousands have lost their jobs. Some say more than 470,000 people could leave the island in upcoming years. Most of them probably, this, this is what we're being told, likely to settle in Florida, which would turn a swing state blue. If we don't reestablish power and other basic services, the damage to our economy will be even greater, says Puerto Rico's Public Affairs Secretary Ramon Rosario. The difference in estimates as to when the power would be restored came after the state-owned utility canceled that heavily scrutinized $300 million contract awarded to Whitefish Energy, a Montana-based company located in the hometown of the Interior Secretary, which had only two full-time employees before the storm hit. Ramos, the emergency director, and uh, or no, the public affairs secretary in Puerto Rico said Whitefish did a good job. The Army Corps of Engineers says it expects about 2,100 workers to arrive in Puerto Rico by mid-November to help restore power. Never too late, babe. I think, where did, where did the hurricane hit? Does the Corps have uh, ability to requisition, requisition transport at all? 
It's part of the what? The army? The uh, power company in Puerto Rico sent letters requesting help from the American Public Power Association and Edison Electric Institute. And the New York governor says his state's power authority is going to send 350 workers and 220 bucket trucks next week, along with special equipment. But, of course, New York has much greater resources than the Army Corps of Engineers. It's not just me criticizing the Corps. It's the governor of Puerto Rico. He criticized the work of the Corps in returning electricity to the island, saying he's unsatisfied with the agency for a lack of urgency that he believes has delayed the process. This is reported by Reuters. The Corps was tasked with overseeing power repairs in Puerto Rico about a week after Maria struck. Some of the criticism has been heaped on the governor's administration. He deflected that to the core. Eh, it could be politics. It could be Rosello, Governor Rosello, and the island's power authority were criticized for declining to pursue so-called mutual aid from other U.S. public power utilities after the storm. They uh, only asked for mutual aid from utilities in New York and Florida this week, hence the response from the New York governor. The decision to forego that mutual aid, according to the governor of Puerto Rico, was based on concerns about the bankrupt island's ability to afford the costs of utility workers. The Army Corps made an offer Puerto Rico couldn't refuse. It said it could help restore power within 45 days with no down payment from the island. But we are very unsatisfied with the Army Corps, he said. Six weeks after the storm, only about 30% of the grid has been restored. Rosello says, we've asked the Corps of Engineers ramp up the plan to bring people over here. It's, it's a very, it, the, the slope of the ramp is so gradual. Let us try. The motto, ladies and gentlemen, because if you try, you just might try some more later after the thing but ladies and gentlemen if you don't believe that we're on an inexorable march of progress please stay tuned for the following feature it's a little thing i like to call i read the trades for you this is from advertising age the battle of the advertising industry Libress breaks taboo around menstrual blood in advertising. I'm going to read it for you. Ain't no stopping me now. From mysterious blue liquid on sanitary pads to euphemistic images of women roller skating in white jeans, advertising around feminine products has long been restricted by a taboo around the products that resulted in being alluded to rather than shown in any realistic form. But advertising is increasingly challenged tradition. Hello Flow has used comedic fun around menstruation. P.S. Public Service announcements protest taxes on feminine products. Now Libres, a European brand, has broken perhaps the biggest taboo by showing what periods really look like. The advertiser was the first to show actual blood in a 
British ad for feminine products last year. That spot depicted women bleeding in sport. Now it's gone much further with a groundbreaking film that shows for the first time blood that's clearly... You know what? Among its many images are blood running down a woman's leg in the shower and red blood being poured onto a sanitary towel. These aren't the only firsts for the ad. It also shows women experiencing period pain and suggests a woman is having sex during her period. Meanwhile, other images set out to portray a world where periods are not hush-hush. A woman's out-of-office reply that states she's working at home because she has a heavy period. A girl goes to a costume party dressed as a sanitary pad. And a man happily buys a pack of sanitary pads in a store. The film ends with a girl going to the bathroom and removing a pad from her underwear. At this point, the screen pixelates as we're told that, quote, according to assorted TV broadcast authorities worldwide, the sight of period blood is unacceptable. The ad ends with the message, quote, periods are normal. Showing them should be too, unquote. Rather than deliberately setting out to shock or be provocative, one of the copywriters, or actually the art director, says... We wanted to create a world where periods didn't feel shocking or gross. The aim, she says, was to treat periods like the most normal thing in the world, where boys pass pads to girls and women ask for pads across a dinner party table. And you can go to a fancy dress party dressed as a bloody sanitary pad. And period pain is recognized rather than suffered in silence just to spare the blushes of men. We are kind of sensitive, darling. That is said facetiously, ladies and gentlemen, just to make sure that you know. Getting it past regulators wasn't easy. Both describe it as by far the most difficult job any of us have ever worked on, both the copywriter and the art director. Every setback shocked and surprised us, and it proves just how deep that shame runs, says the art director, Nadja Loscott. We had to fight tooth and nail with lots of different bodies... I think she means regulatory bodies, over many months, scene by scene. Two versions of the ad were finally approved, a longer, more graphic version to run online and in Scandinavia, and a 20-second edit for the UK. The UK was subject to more scrutiny than the Scandinavian countries, but the Internet is global. We do hope the incredibly positive reaction we've had will convince authorities that their fear of these films causing widespread offense is unfounded says the uh, global brand communication manager for the company. Daniel Wolf, who directed the film, is best known for his work on brands such as Honda and Powerade, as well as music videos. The team chose a male director for an ad that speaks so much to a female audience because, quote, Daniel is incredible at drawing realistic performances out of non-actors. His visual style adds such beauty to anything he does. And his intelligence and empathy meant he could help us make a film that is a love letter to both women and periods. Unquote. The copywriter. Wolf himself says he was surprised to be sent the project. He was particularly inspired, he says, by a poem he read as well as by a social media post that said, can't wait for the day when women no longer pass tampons to a friend like they're a Class A drug, unquote. 
He wanted to show blood in a way which wasn't shocking nor fetishized, sometimes very simply and truthfully, sometimes emotively, sometimes comedically, like the sanitary pad costume scene. The aim, the aim, above all, was to create a new normal, says Wolf. Really no comment is necessary when I read the trades for you. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Southern California, this is Le Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news from outside the bubble. 
You've heard about the criticism of the American Red Cross and uh, its tendency to concentrate on fundraising as opposed to actually providing help in the case of several disasters. Now, The Guardian reports the Red Cross has admitted, this is the Red Cross outside the United States, has admitted that millions of dollars meant for fighting the outbreak of Ebola in West Africa were siphoned off by its own staff. Well, at least they weren't hacked. The organization's own investigations uncovered evidence of fraud with more than $2.1 million lost in Sierra Leone, probably stolen by staff in collusion with local bank officials. In Guinea, a mixture of fake and inflated customs bills cost it a million dollars. The Red Cross said it was outraged at the losses, but its statement did not contain any apology. It's the non-apology of the week. The Red Cross said it was committed to holding all those involved in any form of fraud to account and to reclaiming all misappropriated, diverted, or otherwise illegally taken funds, unquote. Any immunity from prosecution would be waived to ensure any corrupt staff were held to account, it said. An earlier investigation found that in Liberia, the prices of relief goods and payrolls were inflated to the tune of $2.6 million. Hey, that's a catchy tune. At first, aid agencies struggled to raise enough funds to respond to the Ebola outbreak. You remember it. It killed more than 11,000 people across three of Africa's poorest nations. After the World Health Organization sounded the alarm, billions of dollars began to flow in. The Red Cross was giving out tens of million dollars in cash to its affiliate organizations during the outbreak three years ago. Humanitarian disasters often provide opportunities for corruption as large amounts of money flow through untested channels. Supplies go missing and are later sold on the black market in Nigeria, where Boko Haram has waged a violent insurgency for years. The president recently sacked a top civil servant over allegations that he inflated the value of humanitarian aid programs. Please give, but I don't know to whom. News from outside the bubble, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Now, news of the duck. The duck just showed up for that. Seems like a waste, but what are you going to do? Duck doesn't. Duck really has a lot of time on his webs. Journalists, media groups, and users of social media in Afghanistan have accused the government there of censorship because the Afghan government has moved to block WhatsApp and Telegram to messaging services, according to the BBC. The editor of one of the country's leading newspapers said the move was a step backwards and would be resisted. The move may have been initiated to stop the Taliban and other insurgent groups from using encrypted messaging, but as yet there's little evidence of the temporary ban even being enforced. So, earlier this week, officials at the body which regulates telecommunications confirmed they'd written to service providers to ask for a temporary 20-day ban. They cited security reasons. The acting telecommunications minister also uh, uh, posted a message on Facebook saying that the regulator had been ordered to put a gradual block on messaging services to solve technical problems after numerous complaints had been received. It's customer service, babe. Quote, the government is committed to freedom of speech and knows that it is a basic civil right for our people, he wrote. The expansion of mobile phone service stands out as one of the positive developments in Afghanistan since the U.S.-led invasion of the country. That's what we... That's what we can brag about. Right, that right there. That's it. 
Your billions of dollars bought that, ladies and gentlemen, even though there are frequent complaints from the users about audibility and signal strengths. Well, welcome to the modern world, Afghans. Services including WhatsApp, Facebook, Messenger, and Viber are widely used by the Afghan public and their politicians, but also by the Taliban. However, some Afghan social media users and civil rights groups have criticized the government's move. They say it's unenforceable because it can easily be bypassed using virtual private networks. I didn't say that. Never, never mentioned them. Didn't happen. You weren't listening. This show doesn't exist. Speaking of broadcasting invisibility, the cloak was um, removed this week from NPR's top executive as NPR employees unleashed their fury at him over his handling of a sexual harassment scandal that appears to have spread. This from the Washington Post at a packed staff meeting at NPR's headquarters in Washington. They criticized Chief Executive Yarmoon, who kept top editor Michael Oreskes on the job for months despite knowing about three harassment complaints against Oreskes. Now, Moan has forced Oreskes to resign after the Washington Post reported on accusations that date back to the editor's tenure at the New York Times in the late 1990s. Must that have given the Washington Post a little thrill? Five women at NPR have filed formal harassment complaints against Oreskes, bringing the number who have accused him of misconduct to eight. The new claims cover his time at NPR over the last three years. Moan, the head of NPR, has repeatedly admitted since the story broke that his response to earlier allegations about Oreskes was inadequate. During this meeting on Friday, he was on the defensive as employees took turns blistering him for moving too slowly to address what appears to have been a widely discussed problem inside the organization's newsroom. Yeah, it wasn't news to them. The speakers included your Susan, your Susan Stanberg, your Cokie Roberts, your Nina Totenberg said Moan, the number one purpose in being here is first to apologize to every single person in this room for what you had to go through. There's your apology of the week. I let you down, he continued. I should have acted sooner and more forcefully. Moan hired Oreskes in 2015. He said he and top executives had heard rumors and gossip about Oreskes over the years. Had we gotten solid information, we would have acted a lot sooner, he said, seemingly placing the onus back on NPR's employees. He didn't deem the rumors and gossip sufficient to launch an investigation. His comments didn't elicit sympathy from NPR's employees. Newscaster Corva Coleman said, I must say I have no confidence in you. My lack of confidence in you extends to your team, unquote. That was greeted with applause from the hundreds who attended. In an email statement, Oreskes said he had engaged in inappropriate behavior in the past. Quote, I had worked hard to put those failings behind me. I had no intention to offend or harass anyone at NPR. I'm deeply sorry for anything I said or did that failed to live up to that goal, unquote. But one of the new accusations this week came from a young NPR reporter. It involves an inappropriate conversation Oreskes allegedly had with her last year. While attempting to persuade the woman to reject an outside job offer, he reportedly re invited her to his beach house, saying they could share bottles of wine there. She rejected his alleged offer and remained at NPR after she was promoted. She filed a complaint about the conversation immediately after reading the Washington Post story, quoting two other people, that NPR, uh, sorry, 
that NPR had been told that Oreskes had kissed them against their will and put his tongue in their mouths during business meetings in the late 1990s. That was his time at the New York Times. Another complaint was filed last week by an NPR producer who said Oreskes had inappropriately touched her during a newsroom encounter earlier this year. She came forward to NPR's Human Resources Department after Moan, the head of the the, uh, network, issued a statement a couple weeks ago reiterating NPR's harassment reporting procedures. But he said, the head of NPR, he was unaware of this accusation when he sought Oreskes resignation. NPR's management knew of three allegations before Tuesday, and two, including two reported by the Post. A third accuser told NPR a couple of years ago Oreskes had said inappropriate things to her during a dinner meeting. Moan told an NPR interviewer on the air this week that NPR had investigated her complaint and put Oreskes on notice that this could not occur again without serious consequences. Yet NPR took no action against Oreskes until this week. That fact seemed to outrage NPR's employees at the meeting on Friday. Susan Stamberg, one of NPR's founding journalists, called Friday's meeting with Moan, free, frank, and heartbreaking. My heart was broken at what I heard, unquote. And that meeting, that all-hands meeting with the staff at NPR and the head of the network was deemed closed to the media. So NPR's media reporter refused to attend it instead saying he would rely on his own sources, i.e. his friends who went to the meeting. There's another network in a similar situation. We'll hear from them moments from now here on the show. Come along, catch a half a lump. Sit with me on a muddy clump. We'll sing a song of days gone by Run along now, don't be glum Get you gone now, have some fun Don't be long for the end is nigh Don't let moments pass along And waste before your eyes Watch with me in the borough grows Come with me in the slightly toes Come, 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 come along now Run away from the humdrum We'll go to a place that is safe from Greed, anger and boredom We'll dance and sing till sundown And feast with abandon We'll sleep when the morning comes And we'll rise by the sound of the bird song When the air, when the world slows down And the sunbeams fade away Sing 
Specimen, cuddle up with a hesitant skeleton. We'll break our fast with friends. Once we're fed, we shall disappear rapidly. Many moons to the west of here and happily. Our journey never ends. Shout your ears when sirens sing. Listen up and you won't go wrong again Work along on the first the song And then get to where the two ends meet Come, 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 come along now Run away from the humdrum We'll go to a place that is safe from Greed, anger and boredom We'll dance and sing till sundown At peace with abandon We'll sleep when the morning comes And we'll rise by the sound of the bird song CPR Continental Public Radio. This is a special edition of Now and Then. I'm Cody Outscoop in Washington. Well, fasten your attention spans. We're devoting our entire seven minutes today to one story. Journalists never like to be part of the story, so today's a day all of us dislike. Maybe not the engineers and the cleaning crew, but the journalists among us. Today the story is about us here at CPR. And the widening scandal that's engulfed the uh, development department. That's the fundraising side of the network you've come to know and trust ever since we were a scrappy little startup in suburban Beltsville, Maryland. We're very much not a scrappy startup today. As a matter of fact, we're about to open the doors of the massive new CPR center. And the funding raised by the development department is a big reason why. But continuing rumors of sexual harassment by Dylan Lennon Gateshead, the chief of that department, have this week blown up into full-fledged rumors and the subsequent suspension with pay, but without benefits of Mr. Gateshead. Um, No, sorry. That should be without pay, but with benefits. In any case, CPR's special correspondent, Aviva Schlorman, has just spoken with the president of CPR. Here's their conversation. Tom Dolan, you're the head of this network. When did you learn of the accusations against Dylan Lennon Gateshead? Uh, Aviva, I heard about them for the first time uh, during Cody Outscoop's introduction to this interview. And I have to say, uh, I'm as shocked as everybody else here is, except perhaps for the uh, engineers and the cleaning crew. Hmm. What shocked you the most? Boy, I haven't uh, kept strict count of the particulars in my head, Aviva. To me, just the idea that any of this happened and that it could in any way impede our mission of raising the money to support our other mission is extremely disturbing. And that's why Mr. Gateshead was asked this morning to turn in his parking card key, his elevator swipe pass, and his cafeteria VIP dongle. He was asked to. Mm -hmm. Has he turned them in yet? 
from what I've uh, just been advised, uh, he's still working on it. He apparently uh, misplaced his dongle. Which gets us back to the complaints. One of the women who worked in his department, Melanie Morgan Star Goodoy, reported two years ago that at a morale-building team meeting, a so-called plushy day, Mr. Gates had made all his staff dress in plush toy costumes and cavort on the conference room floor for many minutes. That never came to my attention. Uh, as a matter of fact, plushy days are specifically ruled out in our human resources policy book. As of when? As of when we learned about that. Obviously, nobody could have imagined such a thing beforehand. It's it's disgusting. And it has no place in our workplace or in our policy book. But if it's specifically ruled out, it it does have a place in the book, doesn't it? Only in that sense, sure. A couple of more points to cover, if we may. In, including Mama Schlorman's turkey latkes? <laughs> I'm afraid not, no. but thanks for remembering. Now, according to information published this week in publicradiogossip.com, there were accusations against Mr. Gateshead in his previous job. Were you aware of those? Viva, we were aware that uh, he had been a very successful development executive for Hawaii Public Television. But you weren't aware of the reports of so-called furry days? We were not. I have no idea what that would be. Finally, Mr. Dolan, you held an all-hands meeting with the CPR staff this morning. I did. I thought it was important to uh, touch base with the people with whom I feel such a deep and profound connection. And yet you closed the meeting to the media. And, and we're the media, aren't we? We're the media, and we're the story. And when you're the story, you act the way people who are the story act. Now, right after the meeting, we issued a press release. Mm-hmm. And you're happy with that? It was rushed out. Uh, there were a couple of typos we could have done better. I own that. Tom Dolan, thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks, Aviva, uh, for letting me ask you to ask me. And I just want to reassure all our funding partners that we will still have a major presence at the upcoming uh, public radio conference, but the event Mr. Gates had, had scheduled uh, has been canceled. What was that? Something called... Uh, uh, Plushy retreat. First I've heard of it. Mm. I'm Aviva Schlorman in Washington. Funding for this special report will be coming in soon. Now and Then returns at its regular time next time. I'm Cody Outscoop. Peace out. This is CPR, Continental Public Radio. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. So sorry. More of the Harvey effect, the Weinstein Weinstein effect. This is from Mark Halperin, author of Game, co-author of Game Change. Sort of big deal in Washington political pundit circles. I am profoundly sorry for the pain and anguish I have caused by my past actions. I apologize sincerely to the women I mistreated. The world is now publicly acknowledging what so many women have long known. Men harm women in the workplace. For a long time at ABC News, I was part of the problem. I acknowledged that and I deeply regret it. My behavior was wrong. It caused fear and anxiety for women who are only seeking to do their job. 
toward the end of my time at ABC News, I recognized I had a problem. No one had sued me. No one had filed a human resources complaint against me. But I didn't need a call from HR to know that I was a selfish, immature person who was behaving in a manner that, have to, that had to stop. I had weekly counseling sessions to work on understanding the personal issues and attitudes that caused me to behave in such an inappropriate manner. Those who've worked with me in the past decade know that my conduct in subsequent jobs has not been what it was at ABC. I hope that not only will women going forward be more confident in speaking up, but also that we as an industry and society can create an atmosphere that no longer tolerates this kind of behavior. I will be spending time with my family and friends as I work to make amends and contributions both large and small. He has been... Um, released from his TV responsibilities. And Dustin Hoffman is apologizing for, quote, anything I might have done on the set of a TV movie three decades ago where a former female intern alleges she was sexually harassed. This from, ironically, ABC News. Anna Graham Hunter published a guest column in The Hollywood Reporter this week sharing personal accounts when she worked on the set of Hoffman's Death of a Salesman TV film about three decades ago. She admits she's conflicted about revealing the alleged harassment because she still loves the actor's work and said he had apologized. Hoffman, now 80, told The Hollywood Reporter, I have the utmost respect for women and feel terrible that anything I might have done could have put her in an uncomfortable situation. I am sorry. It is not reflective of who I am, unquote. Isn't that the actor's job, to be not who they are? Just asking. Hunter was 17 and in high school when she began interning back in 1985 on the project. I loved the attention from Dustin Hoffman, she writes, until I didn't. Illinois State President, Senate President John Cullerton announced this week that Illinois State Senator Ira Silverstein has resigned from the Senate Democratic leadership team after being accused of sexual harassment. Legislative activist Denise Rothheimer testified in front of a Senate panel that Silverstein made inappropriate comments to her while the two worked together on legislation. Silverstein has denied the accusations but did apologize for making Rothheimer uncomfortable. The uh, leader of the Senate has also scheduled a sexual harassment awareness training seminar for senators next week. Oh, to be a fly on the wall. Here's what happens when you torture people and you're not from the United States. A former member of a Marxist group that seized control of Ethiopia in the 1970s in a bloody purge known as the Red Terror apologized this week for the regime's many crimes but denied personal responsibility. In a dramatic confrontation with survivors in a Dutch courtroom, 63-year-old Eshetu Ilemu accepted blame for the crimes of the Marxist rulers known as the Derg nearly 40 years ago, but insisted he did not carry out the crimes for which Dutch prosecutors hold him responsible. I would apologize on my knees to these victims and through them to all of Ethiopia, but addressing allegations that he was responsible for the torture and murder of political prisoners in the western province of Gojam in 1978, he told judges, I was not there. Dateline Beaver, Pennsylvania, a Beaver County school psychologist was put on immediate leave this week after telling someone on social media to kill themselves. Matt Rem said it was a misguided attempt at humor and was an inexcusable comment. Rem has worked for the district for 17 years, counseling children of all ages. The tweet was sent out Wednesday night and was directed at a local sports radio talk show host 
who had tweeted pictures of him and his family at Disney World dressed up for Halloween. In the photos, Dunlap, the sports talk radio host, is wearing later hosen. Rem tweeted, kill yourself. Dunlap tweeted back, no, nah, I like to have fun with my family instead. Someone forwarded, forwarded the tweet to the school district. Others responded on social media with comments such as, quote, find me one psychologist who would tell someone to kill themselves. Rem's tweet has been deleted, or his leet has been detweeted, and his Twitter account no longer exists. In a completely misguided attempt at humor and the lederhosen cons- costume in Mr. Dunlap's photo, I made an inexcusable comment, he says. I apologize sincerely to both him and his family and hope they will forgive this error in judgment. Just a psychologist telling someone to kill himself. Because it's funny. Humor by amateurs, ladies and gentlemen. Always a good idea. A University of Tennessee Martin campus professor has apologized for writing a letter containing descriptions of mass violence on campus. Letter written by English professor Charles Bradshaw was crafted as an example of satire. It was meant for Bradshaw's class but had been distributed to a wider audience. Individuals who saw the letter notified the cops. Miami's fire chief apologized this week to the family of a black firefighter who last month found, a couple months ago, found a noose hanging over his personal photos inside his room in a city fire station. You have my sincerest apologies for this childish, insensitive, and intolerable act. Chief Joseph Zalraban said during a press conference, called to discuss the firing of six firefighters. You don't treat family this way. We know this. I am embarrassed and truly sorry. Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist David Horsey apologized for an insensitive description of Sarah Huckabee Sanders, White House press secretary, that was removed from his piece about her in the L.A. Times. I want to apologize to Times readers and to Sanders for a description that was insensitive and failed to meet the standards of our newspaper, he wrote. In the original column, he said Sanders does not look like the kind of woman President Trump would choose. By comparison, Sanders looks more like a slightly chunky soccer mom who organizes snacks for kids' games. That's what he wrote. The Dutch Red Cross offered its deep apologies for failing to act to protect Jews during World War II, following the publication of a research paper on its inaction. Bad week for the Red Cross, I would say. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Now, just briefly, news of the warm. New maps of Greenland's coastal seafloor and bedrock beneath its massive ice sheet show two to four times as many coastal glaciers are at risk of accelerated melting as we'd thought until now. Researchers at UC Irvine, NASA, and 30 other institutions published the most comprehensive, accurate, and high-resolution relief maps ever made of Greenland's bedrock and seafloor. New maps reveal two to four times more oceanfront glaciers extend deeper than 600 feet below sea level than the earlier maps. That's bad news because the top 600 feet of water comes from the Arctic and is relatively cold. The water below it comes from farther south and is 6 to 8 degrees Fahrenheit warmer. 
deeper seeded glaciers are exposed to this warmer water, which melts them more rapidly. Get some speedos, won't you? Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this week's edition of the show. The pro program returns next week at the same time over these same stations. And I'm not even going to bother with the whole recitation anymore because I, for, I forget too much and things come, they go, the thing. So you know where you're listening. Come back next week right here. Just do that. And it'd be just like, you're doing that. If you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Tibble Show Chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, in exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson, wherever she is, for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, a playlist of the music heard here on, and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts. Wouldn't that be a lovely surprise for everybody at Thanksgiving dinner? I'll say especially if it was served in place of the food. All of that is at harryshearer.com, and I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans' flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from the home of the homeless.